Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mailbag, nothing personal word of the day. It's a mailbag episode. Mailbag is when you ask me questions through a review that you leave on Apple, which we need. I guess you have to rate five stars and then write a review of nothing personal because they count these ratings and reviews and then ask a question. I answer some of those. Also on Twitter, David P. Sampson or Instagram, YouTube, I guess. Although I didn't look at YouTube this time. So we do mailbag episodes and we just answer questions. And I just want to start because there's so many. We can't fit it in one episode, I bet. David. Yes. We focus so much on the team winning the World Series and rightly so. What's it like for the team that wins when they have to clean their locker out? Are they a little let down that it's over? Happy? Does finality start to set in in both a good way and a little sad way? It's the last time the team is truly together as a whole. I got to think that feels a little bittersweet. Well, you're leading off the show because it's one of my favorite questions. Why? Because I think about the World Series. Can I admit that I think about it every day still? How many things in your life do you think about every day? I don't mean people. I mean things. Moments in your life. Maybe moments that you've witnessed in someone else's life, but you remember where you were, what you were doing. We've talked about it on a recent show that you can remember tragedies. You can remember great successes. But how often do you think about it? Is it a smell? Well, for me, when I've got memorabilia about the World Series or I see a text from Dontrell Willis or I look at a picture of Juan Pierre or I speak on the phone to Jeff Conine, flexing friendship, I think about that World Series. And the first thing I think about is Chicago and clinching the pennant what it's like to go to the World Series, that feeling that I had. But the other thing that is in my mind is the final day, the final home game of the World Series. And that was after game five. It was three to two. The Marlins were winning. We won game five and we were going to fly to New York. We flew on the off day. So the way it worked after the last game is that everyone knew it was the last game because either we're going to win in six, we're going to win in seven, we're going to lose in seven. It was a two-day trip at most, and that was it. So what players were doing at the end of game five, in addition to being happy that we had won the game and gone up three to two after having won game four in a walk-off, as you may recall, when Alex Gonzalez walked off the Yankees against Jeff Weaver, the players do two things with their locker at the end of a season. There are vats that the clubbies bring into the clubhouse and they're labeled. 
There's garbage. There is spring training. There is home. And then there is stay. Stay is for people who want to leave stuff in the clubhouse because they're going to use Marlins Park or Pro Players Stadium during the offseason. Home is gets packed up individually by the clubbies and then shipped in boxes to a player's offseason home. And players make a decision. We don't make it for them. What they want to keep, what they don't want to keep, because during the course of a season, every day, the Amazon people come, but it's not Amazon. It's the UPS people or FedEx people with boxes. Every day, there is a cart full of boxes. There's bats. There's cleats. There are gloves, batting gloves, clothing, various other supplements, products, all sorts of things that players use during the course of a season. And they get it all sent to them, including people who send mail and cards. And we keep the mail in a separate area. And we have mailboxes for every player. And we hope the players will go open mail from time to time and sign the cards that are in them. But not all players do. Some players take an hour a homestand or an hour each half season, one in the first half, one in the second half. So if you don't get something back that you send to players, don't fret. That's totally normal. Don't send something valuable to a player in a clubhouse who plays for a team. The odds are you will not get it back. That's my public service announcement for the day. So all this stuff gets accumulated. And then it's like telling your child to clean up his or her room because it becomes such a mess. And we design the lockers to have hooks and there's hanging space and there's compartments where you can lock stuff. And then there's cabinets, there's shoe racks, because they have tons of different cleats. They have cleats with spikes, cleats with rubber spikes, cleats with no spikes, turf shoes, sneakers, workout sneakers. So you have all this stuff. And it is very matter of fact how these lockers get cleaned. But I remember after game five, thinking to myself, the way I thought to myself at the end of every year was this group will never be together again, no matter what. You can win a World Series, we could win game six, and these 25 guys will not return. It's not because we didn't have money or didn't want to sign players. That's just the reality of sports. It is a moment in time And I'm used to final moments and last looks. And it started because I'm such a huge fan of summer camp. Summer camp is what got me able to be in a situation that's intense. And then it ends. And you look at people, you sing circle game, leaving on a jet plane. You have a campfire. You do a friendship circle. You cry a little bit. And then you leave and go back to your real family, your real world, your real school. And then you hope to recreate it. And you can never recreate a particular year at camp. You can never recreate a particular year of a baseball team, of any team. Think about any experience you've had that's intense, like a road trip or a business trip that you do. And you're with someone or a lawsuit. If you have a legal team, if you're a lawyer and you get together, you work so hard together and then you go your separate ways. The feeling of going separate ways requires introspection, And it requires a bit of self-awareness to know that you want to do what Kristen Dunst did in Elizabethtown when she would take a fake camera. If you're watching this on Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel, I'm holding a camera to my face and I'm clicking it. And I would do that at the end of every season. 
I would look around the clubhouse and I would be thankful to have had the moment knowing that I'm going to search for that same feeling, even when the season ended in disappointment, even when I knew that we didn't perform up to our expectations or even when we outperformed our expectations, the feeling was always the same. It was that sad feeling that I know I'm going to spend the next year chasing sometimes the next five years, 10 years, sometimes a lifetime, and sometimes you never get it back. Players are like people. Not all of them feel the same level of sentimentality. Some players can't wait to leave. They don't even wait for the end of the last game and they're already on a plane, gone. They'd ask the manager for special dispensation to leave early. And we would always grant it. You want to leave? Go, go, go. Make your plane. Get home. Some players are the opposite. And they get things signed by other players at the end of a season. We did that a lot during the World Series. Everyone wanted things signed because they were aware that we were going through something special. You may never get back to the World Series again, even though Dontrell said to me in 03, wow, this is fun. We're going to do this a lot. We did not. He did not. Cabrera made it back. He thought he'd win another one, hasn't won another one. Pudge had never won one and was so incredibly thankful. Everyone signing jerseys. Hmm. It is bittersweet. I'm glad you asked that. The memory, the memory lane that I'm going down right now is thinking about all the work that we would do to recreate a feeling, not just in baseball, but in anywhere in camp and in school and every trip I've ever done. You try to recreate greatness and then you realize the best words to live by is that you can't plan greatness. It just happens. That World Series year, that was great. Hi, David. I had a question regarding major sports commissioners with Bettman, Manford, and Goodell all being in the news. Which commissioner do you think does the best job? And what makes a commissioner good at their job? Someone got to me on Twitter and asked me whether or not I thought I was smarter than all of the commissioners. And I think we may have even talked about it on Levitard recently, though I can't remember. No, I think it was on Twitter. It doesn't matter. I want to address that first and foremost. I am not the smartest person in almost any room I'm in. And I don't say that in a self-deprecating way. I say that in a really interesting, introspective way. There's book smart, there's street smart, there's all sorts of definitions of what smart is. I am highly functioning. And I say highly functioning not in terms of a spectrum, I say it in terms of real world experience that I can draw and learn from and then helps me make decisions about what is in front of me, helps me become a good predictor of what's in front of me. And there's nothing that makes you look smarter than knowing what's happening before someone else. That's not intelligence. That's experience. That's ability to forecast. Are weathermen smart when they get the weather right? Are they stupid when they don't? Am I smart because I can tell you what's going to happen in business, but I can't tell you one thing that's going to happen in my personal life with kids, with marriage, with divorce. I'm terrible. The blind spots I have are legendary as a father, husband, but the blind spots in business, they don't exist for me. They don't exist because I've been through it. These commissioners, I can't tell you anything about them. I don't know their IQ. I don't know how they did in school. 
I know they're all extremely well-educated, but are they smarter than I am because they went to Harvard or Yale and not Wisconsin, or they went to law school at NYU or Columbia and not Cardozo? I went to Cardozo Law School and I'm proud of it. I went to University of Wisconsin. I'm proud of it. Are people not smart when they don't go to Ivy League schools? No, not at all. The commissioners are all smart people because they're able to take their experience, their legal backgrounds, and they're able to apply the political attributes required to succeed at being commissioner. You see, being a commissioner is just like being a politician. Being a team president is just like being a politician. I am a politician. There's plenty of politicians, you would say, who are not smart at all. What are you judging that on? You judging that because they don't read in your mind? George Bush wasn't smart. Dan Quayle wasn't smart. They made foibles when the camera was on. You try living with the camera on all day, every day, and see whether or not you come off intelligent all the time. You try being protected by PR people, but sometimes not heeding their advice. We have an entire show based upon that. People who don't heed their advice. I'm live on the air. I'll call you back. So when you ask me what sports commissioners do their job better than others, I tell you which franchises are worth the more, most. Roger Goodell has NFL franchises worth more than NBA franchises. NBA franchises are worth around what baseball franchises are. Baseball may be a little more. And hockey franchises are worth less than all of them. So if I had to rank how commissioners do their job best, I'm going to put NFL first. However, there's more fans in the NFL than there are in the NHL. I believe that Gary Bettman, as commissioner of the NFL, could have negotiated a rights deal the same way Goodell did. I don't believe franchises are worth more in the NFL because of Goodell. I believe that there are any number of people who could be commissioner of football and have gotten the exact same results. But does that mean they're not smart? What job out there exists that you think only one person can do or only nine people in the history of baseball can be commissioner? It's circumstance. It's luck. It's politics. We got Rob Manford elected because we found a way to get 23 votes over Tom Werner and Tim Brosnan. Not because we thought he was the smartest person in the room. Because he's the one we knew we could get 23 votes for. We thought he'd be the one that would represent owners' interests the best. That's what it takes to be a commissioner. You represent owners' interests. You think Rob Manford is representing your interest in this lockout? Forget it. He's representing the owner's interest. You think Rob Manford cares about the player's side? He can say all he wants. He doesn't. You think Roger Goodell cares about racial equality, systemic racism? Roger Goodell cares about the business of football and will do anything in his power to protect the business of football because that's how he's paid all the money he's paid. And make no mistake, he's paid scores of millions of dollars. They all are. What makes a commissioner good at his job is finding out who your enemies are within the ownership rank and emasculating them like they're in history of the world part two. What makes a commissioner good at his job is knowing who your allies are and making sure they're the ones in charge of comp and that they're the ones in charge of making sure that you're going to get the votes you need when it comes extension time and comp time. 
As a matter of fact, that's what makes everybody good at your job. You say you're not working in a professional sports league. Where do you work? Another company? Do you work at CBS? Do you work at a small business, a corner store? Do you work at a corner deli? Are you a server? I don't care what job you have. How important is your political acumen where you work? It's everything, isn't it? You have to find out who you need to talk to when, what you need to say how, and you're all doing it for self-preservation. Coca can say all he wants, that he, money is on his list, but not at the top of his list. Happiness with others. If you listen to the Coca sit down, by the way, that was awesome. But all of that said, if you didn't listen to it, it was a couple of days ago, listen to it. The fact of the matter is we are judged by how people view us and how they compensate us and how easily replaceable we are. And the more you realize that you're all replaceable, including me as president of a team or as the on air, nothing personal with David Sampson, MLB analyst, the producer, Matthew Coca, the president of the United States, the commissioner of the National Football League. Every one of us is replaceable like that. If I told you my Morgan Stanley story, I'm sure I have, Coca. My Morgan Stanley story is that they had a group of people within that investment bank. Their job, they were the movers. When someone got fired or left for Goldman Sachs, or didn't get fired but decided to leave, change firms, there was a group of people who would come in like Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. That area would be cleaned up so fast your head would spin. There'd be a new pad of paper, a new pen. They'd vacuum the floor. And that office, that cubicle, that chair is brand spanking new. And you're not out of the elevator yet. You haven't left HR with your signed severance package yet. You haven't cleaned out your locker. When players are traded, that locker is turned over so fast. When a player is sent down, in 10 minutes, there's a new locker with a new uniform with a new name. You want to know where baseball insiders get their info? They get it from clubbies. We call the clubby before the owners sometimes to tell them about a player move because they got to make the jersey and they have to get the locker taken care of. It would blow your mind. So I'm not willing to tell you which commissioner I think does the best job. I ask you to make that decision for yourself. David, I got a quick question. One of the perceived sticking points for the MLB CBA is the length of time it takes to get to free agency. I realize that MLB is completely different from the NFL and NBA, good, when it comes to drafting players and the first-year player contracts. And I know ownership wants cost and control. Cost control, I assume you mean. But you don't see NFL and NBA owners crying foul when it comes to the length of contracts because it's basically a max of four to five years for rookies and only first-rounders have that fifth-year option. Couldn't MLB just do something similar? Newsflash, are you ready for it? They do. We do. Players who are drafted do get contracts. You seem to be confused because so many other people get confused about this. Even players get confused about this when they're in arbitration. Players are under contract for six years. They sign a six-year rookie contract. They just sign it one year at a time. And the amount of money they get paid, you've learned on nothing personal, is the minimum for the first three years and then arbitration for the second three years. If you don't agree to what we want to pay you in the first three years, too bad. 
You have no choice. Now, you may read that players get renewed versus agreeing to a contract in their first three years on a team. John Cocktoston did not agree to his contract as a rookie, but he was renewed. It's the same thing. We never cared. Oh, you got renewed? Oh, do you know what we used to do? Side note, we used to penalize players who took renewals. Let me explain. We had a system for paying first and second and third year players pre-arbitration pre, ah, for 869. We had a system for paying players before they hit arbitration. It was a scale and it was equally applied to every player. You play 162 games, that's an extra $10,000. You finish in the top five in Cy Young, that's an extra $50,000. You lead the league in batting average, $40,000. LCS MVP, $150,000. These aren't the bonuses and free agent contracts. These are part of the rookie skill. You play in 10 games, you get $2,000. You're on the injured list, $0,000. So we would take each player, the assistant GM would write down next to each player what they've achieved, the number of at-bats, the number of innings pitched, whatever the case may be. Then they'd write the amount of money that player would get over the minimum, anything from zero to $800,000 over the minimum. And then we put that in a column next to the player. We go to the player and say, this is your contract. And the player says, no, I want more. And we say, well, that's your contract. And then the agent would call and say, no, we're not taking that. And we'd say, of course you're taking that. That's your contract. And then the agent would say, you're going to have to renew them. And we'd say, oh my God, no way. You're making us renew you? Guess what? If you don't agree to our contract, we will renew you for $10,000 less. You with me? We used to do that. And some players would say, that's BS. And we'd get a call. And we'd say, then take the contract. We offered you a contract for this amount. You don't want it? No problem. We have the right to renew you at any amount of money we want. You want to grieve it? You're going to lose. Now, am I being a hard ass? Let me ask you at your job. If they could pay you to do your job $10,000 less, would they? Yes. People who own businesses are trying to pay the least amount of money to the people who do the work inside the business but are not owners. That's why owning an equity is better than salary. Always, because the people who own want more for themselves. Oh my God, it's epic. Who's ever heard of such a thing? So for the first three years, you set up the contract. The second three years, the arbitrator decides if the player and the team can't decide, but it's still a six-year deal. What the players want to do is change free agency to five years because they want players to be able to go make more money on the market. Well, I got a surprise for you. Here's my surprise. The reason why the owners aren't going to give in to five versus six years is because the, is that the commissioner told you that is a advantage to larger market teams because free agents tend to go from small market teams to large market teams. Really? Are we sure? Are we sure we're not just talking about five or six players who are making two or $300 million? The, re the real reason why baseball doesn't move, want to move from six to five is that we can show you a work product that was done within baseball that shows the average salary of free agents as it relates to their age. And what baseball has tried to do since the last CBA is pay fewer dollars to older free agents. 
and more dollars to younger free agents. So we don't want younger free agents. We, that's a dollar bet. That's a loss. Put the dollar in the, uh, in the tin can. They don't want younger free agents because by definition, they'll be paid more money. It's a very simple equation. The older it used to be, Back in the early 2000s, old free agents were getting a ton of long-term deals and a ton of money. And then owners got smart and realized the younger, the better. These players are in their prime in their early 30s, not late 30s. You don't want to pay players like Robinson Cano to stink for you without steroids and still pay him $24 million, or Albert Pujols pay him $30 million, or Miguel Cabrera $30 million. You don't want to do it. So teams are reticent to do it. Are there exceptions? Of course. That's how you get a 10-year deal if you're Seeger or a seven-year deal if you're Simeon. Of course, there's going to be a few, but you have to look at it from the overall union standpoint. The union doesn't necessarily just focus at all on the top 1% of its rank and file, just like it doesn't focus on the bottom 1% of its rank and file. They are far more in the middle. Picture a standard deviation curve. Do you know what that is? Where it's like a... um, an inverted bell curve, or maybe it's an actual bell curve because it looks like a bell. And so standard deviation means that the majority of things that you're measuring fall within that one area. That's where our focus is. That's where the union's focus is. Okay. Hey, Mr. Sampson, quick question. What's the best way to get out of debt? I'm struggling myself and just need some sound advice from someone who knows his stuff. Interesting. You want to know the best way to get out of debt. All right, I, I want to talk about this. I want to take this question, spend some time on it. There's several types of debt. There is investment debt, and there is, I want to, I want to think of the exact way to say it so you can appreciate it when you look at your own credit card statement. There is unnecessary debt and there is necessary debt. It is very important to put your debt into those two buckets. And it's very important that you have the right definition of what those buckets are. It used to be that necessary debt would be college debt, graduate school debt. Necessary debt, home equity, a mortgage. Unnecessary debt, shopping traveling, any sort of monies that you expend that are not done for the purpose of building something, of getting somewhere, and I don't mean by plane, that's called unnecessary debt. Any debt that is investment debt that you are using to invest in your product, which is you, in your product, which is your business, that's what I call necessary debt. How do you balance how much debt you should be in? Do you remember the story that we did probably at the beginning of this year, maybe it was during COVID, where we talked a little bit about how to budget, how to make a budget? Did we do a show on that, Coca? Where I told you that you have to keep track of your monthly expenditures and then keep track of what is fixed and what is variable, what you can get rid of just like that and what you can't, it's the same with debt. There's a level of debt, a certain amount of debt that you are never going to get rid of, that you will carry with you the rest of your life. 
That is the debt that you have to look at as your sweat equity. It's what you have done to put yourself in the position you are in for your life. If you've got law school debt, but you don't use your law school degree, that's unnecessary debt. So the key is when you are incurring debt is to know what bucket it's going to be in, recognize which bucket it's in, and be right about the bucket that you end up putting it in. You've got to get rid of your unnecessary debt. You may say that your credit card debt is necessary because you want to buy clothes, because you want to look good, because it's part of your Instagram profile that you have to look a certain way, or that you live above your means because you need, as part of your job, to look like you have a certain lifestyle. You may call that necessary debt. I call that unnecessary debt. Any amount of money that you are using above what your daily intake is, remember we talked about this with your budget, whatever money you have coming in, if you've got more money going out and it's done for appearance, it's done to make yourself feel better, it's done to fool people, it's done to invest in things that have no chance of a return, then you're making a mistake. And the best way to get out of that debt is to stop Every dollar that is going into the unnecessary bucket, stop it right now. And every extra dollar you have, pay off the unnecessary debt until it gets to zero. Go out to dinner one time fewer per week. Instead of buying clothes three times a year, buy once a year. If you have to move to a cheaper apartment, a cheaper house, bite the bullet, sell your house, start again. If you are living above your means, that means that you are piling up unnecessary debt. You must change your lifestyle starting this second. Don't wait for tomorrow because you will not be free until the unnecessary debt pile is zero. Now, what about educational debt because you're using your degree? Pay that off, pay the minimum necessary because that is what you are using to build your fiefdom, to build your career, to build your future. It's why banks are willing to lend businesses money when those businesses want to grow and they want to make more products, they want to sell more. They don't give you money if you want to open a fourth store when your first three stores aren't doing well. They don't want to give you money if you haven't a proven track record of growing something, which therefore makes this money that you are borrowing good money, good debt, necessary debt. Sometimes people aren't able to figure out for themselves, so they require loan officers to figure it out for them. But the smartest people, the most successful people are the ones who can walk into the bank and tell a banker why they're taking this debt why they're buying this house, why they are starting this business, showing them the business plan and explaining this is exactly how it's going to work and here are the milestones I'm going to hit. And if I don't hit them, that's it. Here is my other forms of income that will be used to cover the debt service in case this business doesn't work because you had a plan. So many people don't have a plan. Now, you could argue that I plan too much. You could and I'd be okay with that because I do. Some people would say it's an OCD-like quality. I plan everything. And the reason I plan everything 
is that is what enables me to know what's around the corner. When I've already gone through a flow chart, here's all the different possibilities with all the things that could happen on a given day. I do it while driving a car for crying out loud. I'm planning my next lane change. I'm imagining and visualizing what I'm doing in a particular day, in a particular moment. And then when I get to that moment, I'm not flustered. I'm not surprised. I imagined it. And then when it doesn't go as planned, because life, <clears throat> life can be messy. When it doesn't go as planned, what do you do? I know exactly what you do. You change your plan. I taught a class recently, Coca, and I did a drawing on that class, my favorite drawing on the, bo on the board in front, explaining how to get from point A to point B, and everyone spends their whole life trying to get from point A to point B. They do it during the course of a day or a week or a month or a year or a lifetime or a career. They imagine what their plan B is, and they imagine how they're getting there. And then things happen during the course of a life, during the course of a month, a day, an hour, a minute, that takes you off track. The people who know where they're going know how to get back to the track to get them where they're going, and they don't get distracted. When you are trying to get rid of your debt, you can never get distracted, ever. You don't make exceptions. You don't veer away from your plan no matter how tempted you are because you're going to fool yourself. You're going to trick yourself. And do you know how people do trick themselves? How do you think? They pretend that unnecessary debt is necessary because they pretend that they have to buy or they have to live above their means because it is a end to a mean, except they have point B wrong. They're off track and they're getting more and more off track, getting further and further away from their endpoint, from their goal. And those people never get back. And that's the majority of people. Why do I get to be successful and look so smart? Believe me, it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with never, ever losing sight of where my point B is for a particular micro issue or macro issue. And always recognizing no matter where I am, I always have that goal in mind. So my advice to you, you want to get out of debt, first figure out what's necessary, what's unnecessary, then change your life to make sure you are profitable no matter what your income is and get rid of that unnecessary debt. Akshav, right now. Oh, I have another question. What are your top five money and business advices to the common Joe? Ooh, that's sort of like what we just talked about. All right, let me give you a top five. I don't think I answered that fully. So let me give you a top five. I'm not sure. Is that the same person who asked those, Coca? Anyway, all right, it's another question. I do have a top five for you. Top five money business advice. Well, number one, we just talked about, right? Save more and spend less. That's got to be the number one piece of advice I can give you. Save more, spend less. I think I gave you my second big, biggest advice in business is that equity matters more than salary. Owning something, whenever you have an opportunity to own something, own it. No matter what it is, equity matters. You want to make a lot of money, you want to own something. I never owned the Marlins. 
Three, business advice. Uh, this is actually a good one for three. Quality matters. When I go around talking to people, interviewing people for jobs or giving speeches or giving advice to people about business, I talk about quality versus quantity. There's a lot of people who in their life get very busy. They go to lunch every day. They have business meetings every day. They pretend they're so busy working so hard, working 20 hours a day. They're working in a quantity, not very efficiently. I would argue that when you are not efficient, by definition, your quality is bad because you know where I am on the on time, right? It's the one thing I don't have enough of and the one thing I can't get more of no matter what. Quality matters more than quantity. When you are doing something, I don't care if it's a five-minute job or a midterm, like two-week job or a one-year long-term project. Quality. When you are buying something, quality matters. It's way better to have one really good piece in a collection than 10 crappy pieces. If you're a collector of something, buy one great stamp, one great painting, one great autograph ball, one great NFT. Whatever you're buying or collecting, quality. That's three. Quality never loses value. I think another piece of business advice I would give is the reason most people fail in business is they're not self-aware. I've told you about knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them. And I would say that uh, the majority of people I come across have very poor self-awareness. Self-awareness is not knowing you're short when you're short, not knowing you're, it is actually. Self-awareness is knowing what you don't know and being okay to admit it. No one knows everything. Self-awareness is the ability to say, I don't know, but I'm going to get you an answer. I used to fire people who would give me bad information, fire people when they would pretend they knew something, and then I would act on that information. It was wrong. And the reason that I would do that is I don't want people around me who are afraid to not know something. People who lack self-awareness are the same people who tend to believe they know everything. Self-awareness comes with security. They're married to each other. People who are insecure have very little self-awareness. Are you insecure? Do you know how you know if you're insecure? Insecure people have to tell people things, not show people things. Insecure people have to tell people things twice, not once. Insecure people have to pretend there's something they're not because they believe that that is what they need to be. This goes back to unnecessary debt. It all ties in, doesn't it? Insecure people are lacking self-awareness. Self-awareness matters. And my last piece of business and money advice, well, you only asked for five. I think this is five, is that you have to know what your risk tolerance is. There are plenty of people who don't want to take risks, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Remember the story about leaders and followers and how you can't be a leader without followers and it's okay to be a follower if you know you're a follower. Lead followers, you need to have leaders and leaders need to have followers. It's a totally codependent relationship and leaders aren't greater than followers. Followers aren't greater than leaders. We're all equal. But knowing which one you are and then being good at it is totally different. And then risk tolerance is sort of a corollary to that. It's knowing what you're able to stomach 
before you take the plunge. It's knowing what you're willing to do in terms of failure before you try an activity. There are people who say, oh, I'm very risky. I won't skydive, but I'm very risky. Is there a risk tolerance involved in skydiving? Yeah. There's a risk tolerance involved in leaving your house. Baby steps to the car, baby steps to the store, getting on a plane, starting a business, changing jobs, changing partners, changing cities, changing friends, changing clothes, changing diapers. What's the risk of changing a male diaper of a little boy? Well, if you don't cover the pee pee, you're going to get peed on. You only need to learn that once, right? How many things in life do you learn by failing once? Do you have the risk tolerance to fail once? Do you have the intelligence to learn from your failure and make sure you don't fail that same way again? Or do you want to be comfortable? There's plenty of people who just want comfort in life, and I don't begrudge them that at all. I don't. I actually count on it because it enables me to take better risks, more calculated risks, and then succeed more at the risks I'm taking. I need people to have low risk tolerance. What's the expression from Let It Ride? Nothing ventured, nothing ventured, Jennifer Tilly says. And she says it in a funny way. Guess who? A football salesman? No, it's me. I want you not to take more risks. I want you to understand the risks you're taking and embrace the risks you're taking. That's what's cool. Those are the five top ones. All right, I think let's do one more, Coca. Hi, David. I was wondering if you think a signing is remotely realistic. I understand that business comes first, but at what point does fan animosity affect front office decisions? Also, how much do players care about the sign-stealing scandal, and when does the front office take that into account? This was someone who was asking about the rumor that there are players who don't want to play with Carlos Correa, which I found interesting, right? Because he was involved in the Astros sign-stealing scandal. I told you the story of Giancarlo Stanton, didn't I? He didn't want us to trade for Mike Fires, who hit him in the face when he pitched for the Brewers, and we took that into account and didn't trade for him. And sometimes I would speak to Stan and say, you sure we don't want to win more games? And he said, listen, there's a lot of things I can abide. I cannot abide him. There are players who are definitely angry about the sign-stealing scandal. But guess what? Owners aren't. And owners don't talk to players about which free agents they're going to sign when it's one of the best shortstops on the market. And there's not one player on one team who will tell you they don't want Carlos Correa if he's healthy on their team. When you say business comes first, yeah. Winning comes first, 1A. Winning is 1A. Making money is 1. And you want to do whatever you can to make the most you can and then to win as many games as possible. And if there's a player on the Houston Astros who can do that for you, believe me, memories are short. The only time I've ever come across where owners will not sign a player who they think is going to help them win is if that player may have steroid implications, that player is at risk of being suspended, that player is bad in the clubhouse. There's a, some reason that an executive or a friend not working for the team gets to an owner 
and plants in the owner or plants in the GM's mind that this player, while maybe good, will not help us achieve either one or one A, either making money or winning baseball games. The sign stealing scandal does not come anywhere near that level. The reason why Correa hasn't signed yet, you may have seen something about a potential back injury. Maybe he's hiding something. Maybe he's more hurt than he says. That's not why he hasn't been signed. He hasn't been signed because he was waiting for Seager to sign and he wants to get more than Seager. He will not rest until he gets more than 32 and a half a year times 10. The question is now, if we spread enough rumors that he's injured, will that scare away every owner? No, because owners know they're going to take a physical and they know they're going to look at the physical and maybe ignore it, maybe not, because they know they're going to get a bump from signing Correa and they feel Correa is going to help them win more games. Are they right? That's a big wait to see, isn't it? Every free agent signing that every owner does is a wait to see. You don't know. The Angels keep signing free agents and they keep losing. There's teams, the Cardinals let Pujols go and then they win another World Series. It's very difficult to know when you're building a team whether or not a specific free agent is going to help you get to October because that's baseball. Basketball doesn't have that issue. You get the best free agent, you put your big three together, you're guaranteed to play June. Basketball. Baseball is different and owners don't want to hear it. So that's my answer to that question. All right. Do we have time for one more? I think that's it. I think we're done, Coca. We're going to do another one. So remember, keep sending those questions. I love mailbag episodes. We have a lot more to go because I didn't get to a lot. It's just business. This is nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.